In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I always love a good superhero movie. Now, superheroes, while they have incredible powers and abilities, usually have some weakness built in for dramatic effect. That way, the bad guys at least have a fighting chance to make the movie interesting. In Superman's case, we know that his overt weakness is kryptonite. But how many times can you work that into a script before it becomes boring? If you've ever seen the second Superman movie in the series where Christopher Reeves played Superman, you'll recall that Earth was visited by General Zod and two other supervillains from Krypton who wanted to conquer the Earth. Superman and the three bad guys fought, but all of them had relatively equivalent superpowers and were pretty much indestructible. So it turned into a kind of stalemate. But then the villains realized that Superman had a weakness. General Zod said, this Superman is nothing of the sort. I've discovered his weakness. He cares. He actually cares for these Earth people, like pets, I suppose. And so the villains realized that they could get Superman to back down and surrender by threatening to harm the people, because even Superman could not protect all of the people from three villains at once. Jesus doesn't have superpowers. In a purely human sense, his physical body and his physical powers were completely ordinary. That's why we call Christ's incarnation a kind of divine condescending, because he lowered himself to experience the frailty of the human condition in every way but sin. That's why Jesus could suffer and die on the cross, precisely because he was not superhuman. But Jesus does have supreme power. He's also the second person of the Holy Trinity. We saw this in the reading from the Gospel in last week. He cured illness, and he raised the dead. There is nothing that is beyond his command. All of creation obeys him. Not because he has superhuman power, but because he has ordinary divine power. If we look at the Gospel reading from today, we see Jesus return to his hometown of Nazareth and be rejected by the people. He says, a prophet is not without honor, except in his native place and among his own kin and in his own house. And then immediately after that, so he was not able to perform any mighty deed there, apart from curing a few sick people by laying his hands on them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. So what does this mean? Why was Jesus not able to perform any miracles except for a few healings in Nazareth? Because, like Superman, but in a different way, Jesus' weakness is us. It was the lack of faith that Jesus found among his hometown that prevented him from working any miracles. Not because God absolutely cannot work a miracle in the face of unbelief. After all, God is not limited by human opposition or credulity but because he loves us so much that he is willing to respect our human free will. As our creator, God endows us with the capacity to choose, to love or to not love, to follow the truth or to reject it, to do good or to do evil. God could commandeer our actions or overwhelm us with proof of his power and presence, but to do so would not be loving. It would violate what makes human beings in the image of God in the first place, 
our reason, our free will, our capacity to respond in love, which includes the ability not to love. That's why when the people of Nazareth rejected what was taught in the synagogue, Jesus performed no miracles. The people did not have the faith to receive miraculous signs in the proper spirit, which is love and adoration rather than shock and awe. Yet the gospel does mention that Jesus was able to cure a few sick people by laying hands on them. And this is critical because even amongst the unbelieving Nazarenes, there were some that were open to Christ, the sick. We know from the canticle of Zechariah in Luke's gospel, God shines on those who dwell in darkness in the shadow of death. Go to a hospital or a nursing home sometime, and you will marvel at the great faith that you see there. Cynics will call it wishful thinking in the face of death. Christians know it to be God giving out his grace when it is most desperately needed. All of us as Christians have certain gifts to share with the world. By our baptism, we are called to a share in Christ's prophetic ministry. That can take many forms. It could mean seeking an office in the church, such as priest or deacon or catechist. But it could also mean something as simple as reaching out to those members of our family or our circle of neighbors who have fallen away from the faith. Yet in discerning how we are called to share our faith through the gifts and charisms that we have been given, we will also become aware of our weaknesses. By the way, if you're having trouble thinking of what your weaknesses are, that's a weakness right there. St. Paul talked about having some great weakness, his thorn in the flesh, which prevented him from becoming too proud of his status as an apostle of Jesus. Scripture scholars and historians, even forensic psychologists, have struggled to figure out what it was that St. Paul was referring to. He never actually reveals it. Yet he does tell us that in time, he came to boast of this weakness, because through it, the power of Christ, and not the power of Paul, was able to shine forth more fully for those he sought to minister to. I think this relates in many ways to what we have been talking about. For many of us, our weakness as prophetic voices, prophetic voices is in sharing our faith with other people. We're too afraid of what other people might think, too concerned about our own dignity and honor. Too afraid that in sharing our faith or in speaking up for the truth, we will be judged as Jesus was by his townspeople because they knew about his humble background. Or worse, we fear that when we speak out about our faith, that people who know of our sins and our imperfections or failures will bring them up to embarrass us with them. But we cannot let any of this dissuade us. Like St. Paul, we have to turn this thorn in our side into a strength. But the good news is that we don't have to show people that our faith makes us perfect, only better. We're not selling people a political candidate or a new cell phone. We don't have to gloss over the difficulties and challenges of living a Christian life or sell ourselves as the shining example of the finished product. Indeed, our Christian faith, by its very nature, is an embracing of our, of our own imperfections, our need for a savior, our need for continual conversion, not just once, but as an ongoing journey towards holiness, marked by repeated confession and repentance. Because more and more, I think, people are ready to recognize that there is no easy path through this life. Too many movements and fads and revolutions have been tried and found wanting. And thus, we can explain to people why our Christian faith is unique 
precisely because it is rooted in the paradoxical victory of the cross. Because if there is one thing that both believer and unbeliever can agree on in this life, it's that we can't escape suffering. But we can embrace it. A faith that allows us to make sense of our suffering and of our own weakness and of our continual need for conversion and repentance is paradoxically very appealing. And to share such a faith with others, it's important that we exhibit humility. By that, I don't mean the kind of false humility that suggests that perhaps what our faith teaches isn't really true, or the many ways or many paths to heaven kind of theology, but rather the kind of humility that recognizes that we as Christians are often imperfect messengers of the Christian faith, that too often we don't articulate things very well or very compassionately or very invitingly. And recognizing, too, that for various reasons, what might seem crystal clear to us is not always so clear to others. Just think how often we don't understand something that somebody else is trying to explain to us. To speak prophetically requires great humility. Ezekiel, Moses, and the other prophets were humble men, who often resisted God's call to them precisely because, in their humbleness, they didn't think themselves equal to the task. And they were right. They weren't equal to it. But God's grace made them sufficient for the mission that they were given. In the city of God, St. Augustine boiled down the basic difference between the city of man and the city of God to the virtue of humility. The leaders and inhabitants of the city of man are filled with pride. By contrast, the city of God is filled with humility. And no matter what else we do, We cannot put on the crown of virtues unless we first put on humility. As our Lord said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones make their authority over them felt. But it shall not be so among you. Rather, whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just so, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.